Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. To support the show and receive weekly grief guidance from me, monthly group grief support calls, and the first look at upcoming books, courses, and projects, become a patron now at patreon.com slash Shelby Just $3 a month gets you access to everything there is to see on Patreon, plus connection to a beautiful group of grievers just like you. Unlock grief support now for $3 a month and support this show at patreon.com slash Shelby Thank you so much for listening. What if you could improve your relationship to grief a little bit every day? If you're looking for comforting words and practical exercises condensed into one small paragraph each day, check out my new book, Your Grief, Your Way. It's a non-religious daily devotional that helps you get in touch with your heart and your grief for a full 366 days. Find Your Grief, Your Way now on Amazon, Audible, IndieBound, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere else you buy books. And stay tuned to the end of this episode for a special excerpt from Your Grief, Your Way. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. Today, I'm talking to Diane Zinna, author of the new novel The All-Night Sun, which explores grief through the eyes of Lauren, an adult orphan navigating loss and so much more on a summer trip to Sweden. Today, we're talking about how we decide when to share our grief stories, and how common it is for our grief stories to be disjointed, unpredictable, and frustratingly non-linear. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide and author who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to create a world where grief is welcomed, normalized, and even embraced. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi there, grief growers. And well, we are sitting now in the midst of uncertainty. More uncertainty than we've already been dealt and have been trying to navigate this year. And the thing I'm referring to, if you live outside of the United States, is our current presidential election, the results of it, the meaning of it, the aftermath of it, the consequences of it, the implications of it. Something that's been very true for me in the last 24 to 48 hours and longer since Trump entered office is waiting to find out whether or not his time as our president here in the United States will end. Something that came up in a workshop last night that I did uh, called Navigating Anticipatory Grief, which talked about how we wait for losses that will happen in the future, the ways we grieve before a loss actually happens, the grief before the grief. The person I was working with brought up the word surrender. And this is something that's very touchy and tender in grief. So often, so many of these good vibes only people and enlightened souls and people who claim to be quote unquote spiritual toss around the word surrender as if it's a very easy thing to do. And in the aftermath of loss and even in waiting for 
a loss, or waiting for something that will change your life, and you know it's coming, it's not easy to just put it down. And and I think that's something that surrender asks us to do is, is what would happen if we dropped this? What would happen if we set down the weight? And we got into this beautiful conversation in navigating anticipatory grief about what surrender really means. And I won't get into too much of it here. I did a video over on my Instagram page at Shelby for Scythia that you can watch. Um, that, that really goes deeper into it, more of a visualization for this, but suffice it to say, grief growers, that we live in a world, a society that tells us to surrender is to give up, to let go, to no longer care or be invested in what happens. To surrender is to release not only your power over a situation, um, but your investment in it your, um, your hope for a different outcome. And, and to me, that's, that's simply false. That's not what surrender is. And I've had to work very hard and work with so many of my clients very hard to reframe surrender, not as I no longer give a crap, because that's definitely not true of us in our grief. Surrender is this place where our humanity meets all the things that are beyond our human capacity, things that take more time, more energy, more strength, more will, more power, more ability, more information than we are privy to or allowed or contain within us at the time. And so to rent, to surrender is not to say I'm giving up. I'm no longer trying because I no longer care to surrender is to say I've done absolutely everything I can do up until this point and to continue to worry, to continue to hold anxiety, to continue to bite my nails and hold my breath and all these other things that we do, anticipating the future, this is the point where it tilts into self-torture. This is the point where I have gone beyond what I'm humanly capable of doing and, and tried to overstep my bounds into the realm of the unknown. There's a there's a point, sometimes it's 20%, sometimes it's 50%, sometimes it's 90% where we can get there but the other 80, 50, 10% is up to something that's beyond us. It's out of our control. It's no longer within our ability. So the example I'll use this week is, is voting. If you live in the United States and you voted, thank you. That's a small way that you can help change the results of this election, along with so many other actions and activities. And for this time, for this day, right now, in this moment, we are waiting to see what our human action of voting has done and will do. And there is surrender in that waiting. So, taking a big deep breath here, if surrender is hard for you right now in this season, or ever, (laughs) if surrender is a word that just grates on your nerves, and it feels like weakness or impossibility to you. I see you in that. And I hope you'll check out uh, this video over on my Instagram page. It seems to be shared a lot. So something in it is resonating quite a bit. And I think it's even still something that I need to hear. Yeah. So wherever you are, whether you're in the United States or beyond, thank you for listening. 
always. Thank you for caring about what happens in our future. Thank you for voting. And thank you for being here. Now, my interview with Diane Zinna, and uh, please note, due to the lovely reality that is Zoom in the time of COVID-19, there are just a few audio blips in the middle of our conversation. So when you get to this space and you hear a few spaces uh, or kind of places where the audio cuts in and out for a moment, know that it's not your headphones or your equipment that you're listening with. It is uh, complications due to Zoom. Well, grief growers, it's not very often that we get a novelist here on Coming Back. So many of the books we cover here on the show are nonfiction, they're memoirs, they're how-tos, they're self-help. So I'm really um, delighted today to introduce you to Diane Zinna, who's written a book called The All Night Sun that reflects on her own grief, but also some things that are universal, I think, in so many of our griefs. So Diane, welcome to the show. And if you could start us off with your lost story. Of course, and thank you so much, Shelby. Um, I actually lost my parents really early. Um, my father passed away when I was 15, and then my mother passed away um, when I was 23 on the graduation day for my creative writing program, for my MFA program. And when that happened, um, she had been my only family. We had grown up on Long Island in New York. And when I moved to Florida for my degree, she came with me. You know, we were all each other had. And, um, you know, I went my graduation day to show her my diploma at her apartment. And I found her. Um, it was that last day before everyone started moving back to their hometowns. And so I was in this new city, newish city to me, um, without any support network. Um, we didn't really have any other extended family. So there was no one else for me to lean on. And, you know, I was right at that edge. I thought that, you know, I was getting my master's in creative writing. I wanted to go teach. I wanted to start publishing right away. Um, I felt like everything was ready to start for me. And at that point, everything I sat down to write, no matter what the theme was, everything veered into a story of loss for years and years. And I tried to ignore it. I tried to write around it. Um, and I recognized, much like my character in my book, that grief is not something that you can walk around. <laughs> you know, you have to go through it. Um, and so that's my story of loss. It was um, me as, you know, an adult orphan, you know, and I didn't know a lot of other people like me. Um, I went through years of depression and whole, kind of holding myself away um, because I felt like no one else really understood what I was going through. And I felt it was a burden to share it with other people. I felt people's discomfort around me. They didn't really know what to make of the kind of grief I was going through. And so this book is really um, trying to tell the story of that kind of grief, the kind of grief that makes other people pull away. And um, yeah. I think this is what I've been trying to do my whole life. You know, every time I came down to sit at the page and try to tell another story, this is the book that needed to come out. Yeah. Well, and I love um, this calling or this need or this drive to write a book about grief that makes people pull away. Because I think so many of us who are grieving, we know 
that feeling where we we roll our grief suitcase behind us into a room, metaphorically, and people scatter like mice or cockroaches. They just go away. Yes. And, I, and I love this line that you wrote. I've got a couple of things underlined on page 18 here. Um, I was too old to be an orphan, old enough to drive, too young to know I wouldn't be able to make things work alone. And this is coming from the main character, Lauren Cress, who I assume, at least in some part, is a, is a reflection of you. Um, in the world and this sense of I'm too old to be an orphan, but I'm enough of an adult that I should know how to do this. And simultaneously, I have no idea how to do this. Yeah, uh, people just scurry um, confronted with this kind of grief because it doesn't really fit a mold that a lot of us have been trained to be used to. You know, we, um, we are taught the stages of grief as though they are the steps of a ladder and we will make it to the pinnacle and we will be okay. And for me, the way that I experienced grief was um, a thrashing on those rocks, you know, um, like moving back and forth against them and, you know, just in a circuitous way. Um, and I felt like I wasn't meeting or fitting any molds and people would, invite me to their Thanksgivings, right? And I would not want to come. And then they would be perplexed, you know? We're giving you a holiday where you can be among other people. Why won't you accept it? And I didn't quite understand it myself. You know, it was um, such a going back and forth between different kinds of feelings that it took me a long time to figure out that this was my grief story and how it was working out for me. And for most people, it doesn't follow a set pattern. Yes. Well, and I think what's true for us one day is not necessarily true the next. So, or what's true for us one year is not true the next. So some years it's like, yeah, I want to show up for Thanksgiving, but other years it's like, no, I absolutely don't. Um, and I've, I've done this icky thing. Well, I'm putting the label of icky on it. Grief growers, you can decide. Diane, you can decide if this is true for you. Um, but at the beginning of chapter four, you, you tell this story, um, of Lauren, the main character in The All Night Sun, um, sitting in the chair of a Vietnamese hairdresser who's asking about her parents and what she got them for Christmas. And, you know, and, and she lies and pretends like they're alive and does this whole thing of, I got my father a shirt, my mother loved Chanel perfume, and, and had this whole dialogue about parents who were very much dead, but pretended that they were alive. And I've done this too in my own grief, because I'm simply just like, that is a door that I am not ready to open either right now or with you, kind of whatever the circumstances may be. Right. That's right. I think it goes on to say that people open the door to the fun house without realizing that they've walked into this place of mirrors and um, just scary things. And you just it's exhausting sometimes to think that I'm, I need to repeat my story again and it may not be received and should it be received by this person in this moment in this public place yeah for sure it was there are many instances where it was just easier just to pretend yeah i love this line i'm going to read it for grief growers who are curious it says sometimes people just open the wrong door without realizing they're in a scary fun house at all and um I think so many grieving people know this, the loaded questions and people who are, are, are asking them don't even know they're loaded. It's like, wow, you have just right. un opened a Pandora's box and you have no idea. And then it's, it becomes the weight of the griever, the person who has lost to decide whether or not to open the box. And that's a lot of yes. pressure redirected back on us. So I wonder, um, in your own loss story with the loss of your parents, how you make that decision. 
Like, how do you know when the box should be opened? Or how do you know when you should leave it shut? Um, I think that unlike Lauren, <laughs> um, I was always trying, you know, in my own lost story, I was always trying. I understood why people would stop trying um, in the way that Lauren does in the book. But I, I was very much the kind of person that if I saw an opening, I would give it a shot. You know, I really wanted to connect with people. Um, and it, I know I was often let down, you know, by no fault of the other people, really. I mean, um, as I said, you know, sometimes they didn't know what to do with me. Sometimes they thought they were giving me what I needed, you know. And um, it was a lot of just kind of meeting that feeling again and again, like I am alone in this. Um, and it was such a remarkable feeling, Shelby, when you did your interview with Cheryl Strayed over Mother's Day. Um, that was when I was first introduced to you and um, got to know the kind of work that you're doing. But that was really, you know, so many years on, um, that was really one of the first times I felt like I was actually in a virtual community of people who might get it. It was an amazing feeling, um, one I will never forget. Yeah. And it seems so, <laughs> I love your heart and your spirit. And you're like, I'm going to try, I'm going to open the box anyway, because I do feel so alone. And everybody around me has good intentions. Like not every griever has the ability to see that. Um, and I don't necessarily think that grieving people are walking around accusing others of being insensitive. But that's often no, the read of yeah. the room that happens. I know for me especially, I was like, no one can say anything right in response to this. And I think in, in response, um, so many of us just become closed off to people. That's very much the sense I got um, from your main character. And you talked about in, in the email you sent me um, to introduce yourself to the show, you were talking about unlikable female narrators. And I had yes. never heard this concept for a novel before. Yes. Of like, what happens when you don't really like the person telling the story? And I did not like Lauren at all. Um, mm -hmm. I, I identified with many of the things that she did. So pulling away from people, occasionally lying about whether my parents were dead, doing something reckless with somebody maybe she shouldn't have um, for a season of her life in order to cope with grief. Um, and so I resonated with these things. And I'm like, wow, I'm a lot like an unlikable female narrator. Um, and also we were very different in a lot of ways. So I wonder, um, <laughs> why you choose that angle to, to present the book to the world. Um, but also maybe why you designed Lauren the way that she is in the first place as an unlikable female narrator. Yeah. And I don't think anyone sets out to create <laughs> an unlikable female narrator. Um, <laughs> you know, I like Lauren very much, you know, I love her and, um, I recognize sort of the reasons why she does the things that she does. And, um, maybe because there were so many elements of her, like me, I got her, you know? Um, but there were a lot of, editors who wouldn't take her on because they wanted um you know when they talk about unlikable they they're talking about they want somebody stronger they want someone more sassy you know they want someone who's meeting the world head on you know and for lauren i think that unlikability is sometimes the um inability for people to really 
know her. Um, and so I wanted to present her in, in just like the truest form that I could imagine of someone who was actually going through that. And I knew that not everyone is going to identify or like her, um, but maybe they would understand her. Um, and maybe that's enough. Um, I will say that many people have written to me and said, you know, I also love Lauren and warms my heart because, you know, all the way to the end of the book, I um, was dreaming of a, a future for her where she was going to be okay. Um, I had actually written like a whole couple more chapters for her where she was out in the world and she was developing hobbies and she was, you know, um, finding new friends. She had, you know, made these connections that felt like family and she was going to scrapbooking parties and I just wanted to give her a full life um, because I loved her you know and the reason I ended the book the way I did um, I wanted it to feel like someone who has been underwater for a really long time their voice not being heard feeling very lost just coming up for one breath of air that first breath and I knew that if I could do that and end the book that way, then maybe more people would be able to see their stories in Lauren's story because her grieving was not over. It was not anywhere near over, but she was going to have another breath after that day and another breath, and it was going to be okay. Yeah. And it, for me, that lack of happily ever after resolution that we see so many times in movies and TV shows, that felt a lot more real to me. I mean, I understand that this is a novel and Lauren is a fictional person, but also she was a lot more like people and grievers I know than other fictional grief material that I've read, watched, listened to, experienced because mm -hmm. there are, there, there is there are and there is. I don't know. That's not gra grammatically correct, but there's so <laughs> much humanity woven into her. And something that was frustrating as a reader, but something that I remember very much from my own grief experience is this. Um, I know grief growers can't see my hands right now, but I'm like expanding and contracting them in a ball around my face. But this expansion and contraction of a timeline or like when things happened and what information was composed of and what things meant and what people's intentions were, like all of that got real fuzzy and real blurry and real um, unreliable at points in time in the book. And I was like, why can't this girl just get her facts straight? And I stopped and I was like, oh my God, when I was grieving or really deep in the throes of it, um, I was not predictable or consistent in my storytelling either. Even if you go back, I'm sure, to the first couple of episodes, I'm coming back and compare the way I told my grief story with the way I tell it now. The facts, the story of the experience has changed. And so there's almost um, mm. a sloppy permission for that to evolve for her throughout the yes. book. And yes. it, as a reader, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so... Um, it felt a little gaslighty. Because I'm like, I'm relying on you to tell the story, but even you can't keep your story straight. And so it contributed to this unlikability, but it also contributed to her, her humanity. And it also contributed to the grief of the story. Like the layers of this thing are very deep. Um, and I really resonated with that because it was a piece of myself and my grief that I still 
grapple with and I'm trying to love. Um, mm-hmm. and in attempting to do that and in seeing myself through Lauren's eyes and in Lauren's character in the book, I'm like, wow, there's a lot more of that work to be done. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, how she tells her story to different people, um, yeah, it might depend on who she's talking to. And like you were alluding to before, um, you know, her story, even as she speaks it to herself, might be different depending on the day and how much she can handle, how much she can remember, how much she can face, and where she wants to draw those connecting lines and try to put it together for herself. Um, you know, it's funny. I have a long publication story, um, you know, but to keep it short, um, I originally sold this book several years ago to another editor who, you know, loved the book from the beginning. We're really close to like coming up with the cover art. And this was like four or five years ago. And she went on to take a job at another publishing house. And um, they assigned me a new editor who had not been the acquiring person, but just someone who liked the story. And I remember I was so excited to meet with her because it meant the book was still going to happen. And we met up at a diner and I was in a celebratory mood. Um, and I ordered these waffles with caramel and whipped cream and like all these berries and everything. And she ordered black coffee and dry toast. And then our conversation started around the book. And it should have been a signal to me that maybe we were in the same place. And what she asked of me was, can you take the story and put it into a linear timeline? First this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And I was terrified of losing the book contract because it had taken me so long to get there. And so I figured, okay, maybe it's an exercise. Maybe we do this and... I'll learn something from it, from putting it into that format. And so against my better judgment, I did it. I pulled the book apart and I retold that story, which was in so many ways my own story. And I didn't feel good about it. Still sent it to her thinking, she may not like this, but you know, we'll get back to the way it was. Maybe we've learned something. She canceled the book. Okay. And it was devastating for me. Um, she said that it just wasn't working for her. But for me, I knew in my heart that this was a story, because my story of grief was one that went back and forth in time. It was on a little nuggets of information along the way, out of order. You're walking down the street and you see something that triggers a memory and suddenly you're in it. That was the way I needed to tell this story because that was grief as I had experienced it. It took me 14 months after that happened to return to the page and try again because I felt so invalidated by that experience by someone telling me that it needed to be linear and you can't even get linear right, right? Um, you know, why can't I make sense of a grief experience like this? Well, because it needed to be in that format. And so I put it back together finally into my own voice, into the way that I felt it needed to be told. And my agent went out with it. And in two weeks, we got another editor who loved it and saw it um, in the way that I, I loved it and saw it and understood that grief can move that way. Um, and sometimes there's misinformation. Um, sometimes there's missing information. But 
hopefully the whole is giving a sense of exactly what she's carrying with her every day. Yes. And it sounds like, I mean, wow, getting this book to book on the shelf state was in and of itself a grief experience. Oh yeah. You know, will this be, um, read, accepted, um, Will people be able to listen to this person's story with patience, with compassion, with empathy? And overwhelming the response has been yes. Yeah. But the, the idea of a book as a grief experience, um, the metaphor makes me laugh. The, the waffles versus the dry toast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, even that says something about grief and loss versus what you're feeding yourself when you're <laughs> approaching a creative idea. Um, but these these questions are so valid. It's will it be loved? Will it be accepted? Will people get it? And these are all questions that we ask about ourselves as grievers when we enter into the world, not to mention when we make something that contains our grief and then push it out into the world. Because at some point, and I spoke about this on a, on a previous podcast on another show, um, is that especially as grieving people, when we make creative work in the world, at some point it no longer belongs only to us. It's like we invisibly sign over the rights to everyone who will ever yes. see, read, touch, consume, critique, love it, um, yes. and all that that implies. And so there's more and more layers of possible grief that you open the door to. I mean, talk about the funhouse scary. We could go scary or we could go cotton candy. We really don't know um, <laughs> That's right. until it lives out in the world. It's um, It was 13 years in the making, and people have asked me, you know, was it healing for you to write a story that was so similar to something that you had actually experienced? And I know I can't stay with material that is so similar to my own lived experience and not be changed by it. I know that was happening. Um, but it was always hard, always coming to the page and sort of trying to be very, very close in the truth of a feeling that I had lived trying to get as close as I could and put that into words. That was very hard. Um, it didn't feel healing as I was writing it, but it's been in the reception um, where people said, thank you for writing a book where I feel like I see myself on the page for the first time. That has been healing because it's in the connection. I've always um, hoped that this would, you know, um, bring the people you know, uh, just connecting lines in their own life and realizing that their grief experiences are are valid and unique to them and something that they need to take their time with. Right. And that they have that permission for it to be nonlinear or disjointed or with holes in their memory and all these other yes. things that um, so often the rest of the world doesn't allow us to be or to do in our grief. Yes. I'm wondering, um, you, you mentioned that your mom died in the midst of your graduation from the creative writing program. And I, I know from what you said that the act of writing wasn't necessarily healing, but I wonder in what ways in the past 13 or more years your writing itself as an art form has changed as a result of your grief. So I'm thinking like sentence structure or the, the oh, things yeah. and the people that inspire you, but also um, how you feel about your own work when you look at it on a page. 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, when I was in my creative writing program, um, I was the only female student in my year with all male teachers. Hmm. And it was a small program. And so I came into that program with certain stories that I wanted to tell about family and friendship and things that were, you know, always just rubbing up against the line of sentimentality. That's where I wanted to live. That's where I, the kind of stories I wanted to tell. Um, but I had a room of men who were writing, for the most part, really cynical stories, a lot of sarcasm. The feedback in the room was often very sarcastic. Um, there wasn't a lot of patience for the kinds of stories I wanted to tell. And so uh, I was young, you know, I was in my early 20s, and I thought this was the way of publishing, of writing. I didn't know any better. And so I started to play to the room and I started telling different kinds of stories. And the stuff that I was always good at, which people would say, you know, was inventive writing, um, that, you know, got better while I was there and that got amped up in people's feedback. And I always felt like I was doing great, but I wasn't telling anywhere near the stories I wanted to tell in my own voice. I was speaking in someone else's voice. Um, when I found my mom that day, um, and when I started to come back to the page and I started to tell stories again, I realized I didn't want anything cynical or sarcastic or artful, um, near my stories. I knew that, um, the story of my mother and what I'd been through and of loss as I knew it, it was too tender for any of that. And I wanted just to do my very best to write um, my authentic story. I wanted to write from a place of um, deep truth. And so over the years, that has been how my voice has evolved. And I would say in some ways it was a coming back to my own voice after a period of trying out someone else's voice. Um, and I'm so glad I didn't start publishing, you know, back then. I'm so glad I had a chance to find my way back to the home of my own voice um, and to shed those things that weren't of me. And I think that's just such beautiful imagery of I had to try on and very much step into places I didn't belong in order to return to a place that I always did. Um, yeah. And I want to do a little bit of a, um, a pivot here in, in talking about discovering your mom and then your dad's death at 15 is, is what do you remember of your parents and the things that you put together? Because I'm recalling this line, um, from the book that says, I can see them so clearly, but there are times I cannot remember my mother's voice, my father's hands. And, I, I think there's this sense, I even in my own world and even in my own grief, there are the things that stick so sharply. And then there are things where it's like, wow, I have to really reach to even get a whisper of what, of what that was on them. So I wonder if we could take just a few minutes and you could share, um, who your parents were to you in life. Oh, thank you so much. Um, you know, people don't get asked this kind of thing enough. It's just a beautiful question. It's sort of like in the book where Siri, um, the student whom 
Lauren be friends, which is across the desk and grabs her hand and says, you know, tell me what were they like? Mm-hmm. You know, it's such an invitation to share. Thank you. Um, my father was an artist. He was a visual artist. Um, when I was born, he had to stop his freelance artwork and get a more practical job. So he went and became a, a, post, a postman. Um, but he was a, a fantastic um a painter and he did a lot of murals actually a lot of murals in and around Washington DC which is where I am so sometimes I've gone back to see those murals and just know that his hand was there and it's been very important to me um, one of the early life lessons that he gave me that I've tried to share um, with my daughter who's now eight um, was about art about writing I had this I have this memory of being on the kitchen floor and I had poster board and markers and paint and all my supplies. And I was supposed to put together a drawing of a tree and I was freaking out. (laughs) I could not do it. I could not get it right. I was in tears. I was crying. Um, And he came over and he just asked me, you know, what is going wrong? You know, tell me what you're feeling. And so he showed me just with a few um, strokes of his pencil. You know, it doesn't have to be the whole tree. She, your teacher asked for a picture of a tree, but what about a picture of a branch? And he just, you know, made this picture of a branch and he showed me how here's the fun stuff that you like to do, Diane. You want to do the leaves. You want to do the caterpillar crawling on there. You want to do the shine of the apple. That's what makes you happy. And trying to get that perspective of an entire tree was overwhelming to me. But he helped me find my way into art and say, this is how I claim my tree. You know, this is how I want to represent it. And I never forgot that. So when my daughter is passionate and excited and upset about her project, I always try to leave it back to, how can you find your way into this that feels authentic to you and gives you joy? That's really cool. It's like, how can you take a slice of a, a larger picture? And it's just as good, if not better, than trying to create the whole thing from scratch. Yes, yes. So that was him, and he um, he actually passed. Yeah, he passed when I was fifteen. He had the same kidney disease that I have, and it's a disease that doesn't have a cure yet. And so sometimes I think about how, you know, like where was he? Like how? Like how? What was his health like at this age? You know, where am I have to compare our journeys on this? Oh, sure. So I think about that a lot. Um, and his passing was very slow. It happened over many years. Um, I remember you know, the last day I saw him, I went into the hospital room with my mom and he was, he had been unresponsive for a while. And I remember it was late in the day, so there was a slant of golden light coming into the room, just filling it up, really. And I was standing in the doorway, and my mother went over to his bedside. And she leaned down, and she said to him, I love you, Freddie. And she hadn't really spoken to him as, I hate to say it, but as a person in a really long time. Um, His long illness had been really hard on her and she had been very depressed and pulling away from him and just doing the bare minimum in a lot of ways. At that moment, in that golden light, she said, 
um, I love you, Freddie. And he opened his eyes and he gripped her and he said, you too? And I always remember that. And she cries, of course I do, of course I do. And then that night he passed away. He got the phone call in the middle of the night and I um, remember crawling into my mom's bed and just sleeping side by side and just weeping through the night. Wow. And my mom, um, you know, we became each other's best friends. We were inseparable. We did everything together. And it was um, it's interesting. It's something I've been working on in a new book I'm writing now, but this feeling like um, anything I did, any experience I had, I felt almost like it wasn't real unless she was experiencing it too. And maybe it was because she was my person. You know, she was my person at that time. And if I saw a TV show I really loved, I wanted her to see it too. If I went to a park and I saw an alligator, well, I was going to bring her back to that, that park and we were going to find <laughs> that alligator. And, you know, I wanted her to see that one, right? That actually happened because we were living in Florida and there were a lot of... <laughs> alligators in the in the pools and the parks down there, um, but yeah, she was my person, and we were very very close in those years. As I mentioned, she moved down to Florida with me so that I could do my degree. She could be in the same town. Um, she was very hold off. You know, she had me, but she was not trusting of friends. She was lonely, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, and so I, I feel like, you know, my father's death was just so hard on her that she had a really hard time coming back from that, you know, and she didn't have a support network around her um, to help see her through. And so that was sort of like my model, right? Like when she passed away, you know, there was that feeling that I learned that People aren't going to get it. There's no one who's going to be there for you. You have to rely on yourself, you know, um, because that's how I had seen her going through her grieving for my dad. Yes, and so much of how we grieve is what we learn through that modeling. But I'm so um, curious about this picture of your mom, because even at the beginning of our conversation, you had said, uh, we were all the other person had. And while there is great depth and meaning and importance in that, it sounds like she was your eyewitness. Like if I saw something, she had to come see it too. And almost yes, like a, yes. like a validator, but also like I'm, I'm living this life and you have to experience it with me. Um, and, and there's kind of a joy and a lightness in that. And then there's also kind of a, like a need to be seen in that also. Yeah. And yes, and anxiety in it. Yeah, sure. Yes. Um, and so when that goes away, when she dies, it's like, okay, well now what? My, my eyewitness yes. has vanished. My father is gone and now my eyewitness has vanished. And it's almost, um, it's almost like one of those Zen cones where it's, it's like if one, what's the sound of one hand clapping or if a tree falls in the forest, is anyone mm -hmm. around to hear it? Um, it's like if, if I'm living my life after loss, does anyone care how I'm living it or does anyone see the pain I'm in inside of it? Um, yeah. What happens when the eyewitness goes missing? Yes. And then there was also this feeling that 
you know, all of the family stories and the memories and the objects that were important had fallen to me. And the responsibility of keeping all of that alive and relevant in the world felt like a really heavy thing to carry. You know, um, do I, if I look through a, through a box of photographs, can I tell the same stories of these photographs that my mother would have told? And why not? Have I forgotten? How dare I forget? Yeah. Well, and, and not having another set of eyes or another, um, another storyteller in the mix. And this came through in the all night sun too. Um, it kind of invokes this feeling of, well, then I can be create whatever I want. There's an, there's an air of recklessness that enters the picture because now mm-hmm. I have no accountability. I have nothing tying me to anything. Um, and one of the, the lines I underlined, at least in the beginning of the book, let me see if I can find it again. Um, it was about floating in the world. And I was like, Oh yes, I know exactly what that means. Um, and I resonated with it so much. Let's see. Oh, um, when I look back, it felt like floating because before then I had been so rooted. And it's like, we don't even see how rooted we are as people until we experience great loss. And then it's like, wow, we are rocketed towards a, a very great abyss in a lot of situations. Yeah. Yeah. That recklessness and, um, kind of this idea it wasn't suicidal but teetering on this idea of whether or not i really want to be here and oh my gosh eating up a total zest for life and and swallowing the thing whole i felt like it was two poles the book was oscillating between yes because um this is funny we're almost through through the interview and we haven't even really outlined the (laughs) plot of the book um but lauren meets uh, a student and travels with her uh to Europe and goes to Midsummer Fest and a great deal of things ensue. But there's, gosh, this distinction of being in the U.S., being abroad, being dead, being alive, being reckless, being responsible. It's like there's all of these poles that Lauren's character is oscillating between in the whole book. And, and the, t- the whole time I'm reading, I'm like, just make up your mind. <laughs> but then that's something I laugh at myself because I'm like, I said that to myself in my grief also is just make up your mind. When in reality, it's an impossible ask. We are, we are asked and tasked with holding dual realities inside of us all the time till the end of time. And even, um, slight spoiler alert, uh, one of the lines from the end of the book, um, is, uh, is about love and kind of how that's defined. Let me see if I can find this one too. I folded down some pages so I could get to places more easy. Um, in the conversation. Oh, yes. So Lauren narrates, she writes, I saw Siri first as someone who might save me, then as someone who had failed me, but love was holding all the pieces at the same time. And it's always true whether we remember that or not. Perhaps because of that, there are, though there are things we might forget, nothing is ever really lost. And wow, to oscillate between savior and failure, responsibility, recklessness, the U.S., Europe, light, dark, like, wow. This, um, the amount of layers that are contained in the all-night sun was just astounding to me, and even more are coming forward now, even uh, in conversation with you. Um, yes, our job is grieving people, whether we realize it or not, we're already doing it, is to be a container for all of it. That's right. Um, 
you know, one of the first things that Sirius is to Lauren, you know, which is inviting her to come back to Sweden for midsummer during this time when there was going to be endless sun, right? And it just feels like such a, a difference to Lauren from what she's been experiencing all these years of just, you know, being alone in her dark apartment. Um, but she says, come with me to Sweden. It'll be midsummer. Everything will just be green and fresh and new. Everything will just be thawing out. And Lauren feels like, yes, <laughs> that is my invitation back to um, a way of being I haven't had in a long time. That feels like a respite from grief for me. And when she goes there, she's bringing with her all of that pain. It comes with her. But now all of that darkness is sort of splashed against this really bright canvas of unending day and people, you know, hopping around midsummer poles and singing jovial songs. And she's there still with all of this pain inside of her. I knew that um, when I traveled to Sweden during midsummer, on um, that contrast, you know, where I was, I was in a period of deep grief, the contrast of like the beauty there. The, the endless day, all that sunlight that just made everything sparkle and what was inside of me, that was a story. That was a story because that was a very dramatic way of showing it, but that is what a lot of us do every day. You know, we go to our kids, you know, school play, you know, and we're bringing with us our grief. We go to a Thanksgiving and we're bringing with us our grief. Um, the Midsummer Festival was just a beautiful canvas upon which to splash all this, um, this brief talk and this, um, this story of m moving our way through it. Yes, and it's this reinforced environmental reminder of even light, actual sunlight does not have the power to drown out loss, and loss does not have the power to make, to force the sun to stop shining. Um, right. we must carry both. We must be containers for both. Um, and Diane, as we're getting to the end of our conversation, I know you shared something with us a, a few minutes ago about having, uh, the same kidney disease as your dad. Uncurable, incurable, uncurable. Yes, and, mm -hmm. um, and living with that as a reality. And so I wonder, as you've also mentioned, you're working on another book. Um, if something you feel in relation to your writing and your work is a sense of, mortal urgency. I think this is something that I hear from a lot of creative people, but myself included, and I don't I don't have something that I know about. I just know I'm going to die one day because I've witnessed my mother's death. Um, but there's almost this rush or this pressure to get everything out into the world that you want out into the world because one day you're going to die. And I wonder if that's true for you and or if that played into the publishing of The All Night Sun. I don't feel like there's a rush in me to get the stories out. I feel like, if anything, the publication story of The All Night Sun taught me that everything is going to come in its own time. And when it does, it'll be of its time. Um, so I've never felt this sort of urgency. I instead feel that um, I just want to make sure that what I'm writing about is meaningful to me. Uh, you know, when I lost that first book contract, my agent, who was an angel and stood by me through that whole thing, she said, well, do you want to go out with book number two? I know that you've been working on something else. 
Do you want to try that one first? And I just knew that the All Night Sun contained enough of my journey to the page um, that this needed to be the book that went out first, however long that took. You know, I just, I wanted this to be my entranceway into storytelling, into sharing my words with the world. And so now that it's out and it's been received so beautifully, I feel like I can relax and tell other stories. I think they'll always have grief at their core. It's something that I, I really believe is important to talk about. Um, I'm teaching a class on writing grief coming up later this month. Uh, I do a lot of work in this area. I think it's really, really important. It doesn't get enough attention of writing fiction about real-life grief experiences. So my work is always going to contain that, but um, not with a sense of, I need to get it out. I just need to get that story out um, in the way that felt authentic to me. Yeah, I see a, an image of no hard grip or... um like a desperation like I don't I don't hear that energy in your voice at all it's like I just see the doorway and I know that this is the thing that's supposed to pass through right now oh that's, that's um, beautifully said thank you yeah it's it's a different kind of energy that I hear from a lot of creative people who are either staring down a, a known death I know how I will die um or I have a very strong suspicion because how do any of us really ever know? Um, but then, but then people who kind of have an unknown death somewhere moving in the future. So thank you for asking that question. I know that, um, for a lot of artists, it's not something they, they genuinely want to step into, but thank you for sharing that with us. Cause I know, um, sometimes it can be at the heart of what you make. Um, but Diane, as we're wrapping up, I wonder where people can find your work and the the writing courses that you're leading and anything else that you'd like to share with us today? Oh, thank you so much. So um, my website is dianezena.com. And on that website, you can find information about where to purchase the All Night Sun. It's everywhere, um, finally. <laughs> but um, you can also find information about my creative writing classes and on my Sunday afternoon write-ins, which I do around grief. So they're drop-in classes. They happen every Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern time. And you just come as you can and you find a supportive community ready to listen um, to your stories of grief in whatever way they come out that day. That's beautiful. Well, and especially as we tilt into the holiday season, that's something that could be a bit of a, a rock or a cornerstone for people who don't exactly know how this how this year in particular is going to go, or if they find themselves oscillating between these poles of light and dark and recklessness and responsibility and anything else that um, seems to feel like an endless ocean in grief. It's really lovely to have um, places and outlets like yours where it's like, yes, this is a, this is a thing you can count on weekly or monthly or yearly. Um, that can be a, a bastion for you in your grief. Thank you. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much to Diane Zinna for joining us on Coming Back to talk about her book, The All Night Sun, and the importance of having our grief stories heard and held. 
Diane came back by writing, of course, but also by embracing lessons about art and creativity and making things her own that her father taught her. You can find Diane's book at her website, which is included in the show notes. You can find my new book, Your Grief, Your Way, 366 Days of Comfort and Practical Exercises After the Death of a Loved One, now wherever you buy books. And be sure to stay tuned after the credits for an excerpt from the book. If you'd like to get online grief support for just $3 a month, pledge to support this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. You'll instantly unlock access to weekly grief guidance prompts and monthly live calls with me. Our next live grief support call is happening Monday, November 16th at 5 p.m. Pacific. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and tell a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you to Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I'm proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. It's okay to surrender. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Coming Back. Now, check out the November 4th entry from my new daily grief book, Your Grief, Your Way. November 4th. Grief doesn't have a plot. It isn't smooth. There is no beginning, and middle, and end. Anne Hood. Grief is less like a predictable sequence, and more like an amorphous blob of uncertainty. You can't forecast your way out of grief, because there's no way to determine when the next wave is coming. This may seem disheartening at first, but when you recognize that there is no structure for grief— you can stop trying to pinpoint exactly where you are on your journey. If there's no roadmap, it's impossible to be lost. If this entry resonated with you and your grief, you can purchase your grief your way now wherever you buy books, including Amazon, Andybound, Barnes & Noble, and your local bookstore. And be sure to order your books in advance for the holiday season, especially if you're considering giving your grief your way as a gift. See you next week on Coming Back.